Hello and welcome to the Hormones in Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Vivian Allred, naturopathic nutritional therapist and hormone enthusiast. If you want to learn how to rebalance your female hormones, regulate your menstrual cycle and reclaim your vitality, then you are in the right place. Each week I will be delving into different conditions such as PCOS, endometriosis, infertility, hypothyroidism, acne and hair loss. Stay tuned for interviews with expert guests, Q&As and solo episodes that are all intended to help you move from hormonal chaos to hormonal harmony. If you'd like to submit a question for me to answer on the podcast, then you can email them to hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. The information shared on this podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not designed to replace the advice of your health practitioner. That said, let's get into today's episode. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast and episode 100. I absolutely cannot believe that I've gotten this far and it's not over yet. So thank you so much for everyone who tunes in every week. And I wanted to make this episode a little bit different, a little bit special to celebrate. So in this episode, I'm sharing five of my most downloaded episodes, which also happen to be some of the most important things that I've ever learned about nutrition and about health. Because there's been a lot of guests, a lot of subjects covered. So I wanted to share some of my favorite ones as well. So I've summarized five out of my favorites, but there's plenty of others. So someone's not made the list. I'm very sorry. I'll probably do this again another time. And this is going to be the last episode of 2020. But don't worry, episodes will resume on a weekly basis as normal from Monday the 4th of Jan 2021. So we're going to have a nice few weeks off over Christmas and New Year because you're probably not going to be listening to podcasts and things during the holidays. Although there's may not be much to do. I know that some people can't travel and see friends and family. So apologies, but you've got 100 episodes to go back and listen through and I highly um, highly recommend doing so. And I've had so many guests on the podcast and you've probably not had a chance to go through them or maybe you want to revisit them because I do this all the time. I go back and listen to some of the guest experts that I've had on. And I'm going to give you in the ones that I'm sharing today the episode numbers and the titles so that if you listen to the clip, you want to learn a little bit more and carry on listening you can definitely do that there'll be links in the episode show notes as well and you probably realize that the subjects on the podcast have changed a little bit especially over the past few months in particular and that's because it's been really drilled it's like really drilled home to me that from my personal health journey and just experience now that hormones only go out of whack when there's something else going on when there's other body systems malfunctioning they're like the followers So when I first started off, I was like, oh, you just need a little bit more progesterone. We just need to work on estrogen detoxification. And for some people, just like a little bit of liver support is what changes the game or adding in some vitamin C helps the progesterone and everything's fine. But you can't just focus on boosting progesterone if you're chronically inflamed. Your body's never going to give you that optimal production. You should be making progesterone on your own in adequate amounts if you're under the age of 35. After that, things do go a little bit um, out of whack because your hormones are changing during perimenopause. It shouldn't be a huge issue, but your progesterone levels just decline naturally. But if you're also just trying to detox estrogen or estrogen without fixing your gut, you're going to have a really hard time doing so. And you're just going to be chasing your tail trying to fix a symptom rather than addressing the root cause. 
So we don't want to manage things. We want to address the underlying imbalances that are causing them in the first place. And I'm still going to be talking about all the usual stuff and the things that I started off talking about. So using herbs for period problems, using great skincare for acne, but some of the subjects like mold illness, trauma, environmental toxicity, heavy metals and parasites that I've been talking more about recently are typically the true drivers of disease. And one of the podcast episodes that I'm going to share today mentions that and kind of reiterates that as well. And maybe you do just need to sleep a little bit more and clean up your diet. That's amazing if that's the case and all you need. But if you're someone who's listening, who's dealing with ongoing period problems, acne, hair loss, fatigue, digestive issues or infertility, that's chronic and you're doing quote all the right things you need to look deeper there's always an answer there's always hope before we get into five episodes i would love for you to take 30 seconds to leave me an itunes rating and review if you haven't already as these are what really help get the podcast and these episodes in front of more women who need this information and aren't getting help from conventional doctors or elsewhere this podcast isn't free for me to create um, it takes a lot of time, energy, and effort, and I want to keep providing this free and valuable content for you guys. I read every single one of your reviews, and they mean the absolute world to me. Other ways to support the show, if you don't have iTunes or the Apple Podcast app, would be to subscribe, share episodes with your friends if you find them useful, or screenshot episodes that you're listening to, and tag me on your Instagram stories. I love seeing and viewing those. So I'm very excited for the episodes I've got lined up in 2021. If you've enjoyed the first 100 episodes, you're going to love these ones that are to come. I'm always open to guests and subject suggestions as well. So feel free to DM or email me with what you'd like me to cover. I do want to make this resource for you guys at the end of the day. Okay, so that said, I'm going to be sharing some of the most important things that you need to know for optimal health and hormones in this episode. The first one is... The importance of organic food and the avoidance of glyphosate. So this is from episode number 55. What you need to know about glyphosate, GMOs and vaccines with Dr. Stephanie Seneff. I used to think that organic food was a waste of money. I remember going to the supermarket and seeing the organic food and it was, exp it was more expensive and I would just never understand why people would choose to eat that when you could get the same thing for cheaper. But it's really something that I'm now passionate about. And this is because glyphosate is also known as Roundup. It affects our gut health. So it's basically an antibiotic. And if you're doing a really good job at avoiding antibiotics, um, unless absolutely necessary in your regular health, but you're still eating pesticide-laden food, fruits and veggies every day, then you could be, still be being exposed to that. Plus glyphosate affects the amino acid structures of the body, basically how our tissues and organs are built in the first place. But Monsanto, the creators of glyphosate, claim that it has no negative effects on human health, but it's designed to kill bacteria. And I'm not sure whether they forgot that we actually have trillions of bacteria in and on our body, contributing to immune health, metabolism, inflammation levels, all of that. I was really honored to have Dr. Stephanie Seneff on the podcast as so she was one of my first like, big guests and she was one of the loveliest people that I've ever spoken to. I really admire her research and determination to get this information out to the public because it is very suppressed. So let's take a listen to the episode. Particularly intrigued by the dysbiosis in the gut that's linked to autism. You see a lot of issues with the gut 
um, connected to autism. And I was like, what is it that's causing this problem with the gut? You know, so I was sort of frustrated and discouraged. And then I happened to just hear a talk serendipity, uh, two hour presentation by Professor Don Huber. That was after five years of looking. And he talked about glyphosate. I didn't know what glyphosate was when I walked into the room. And after two hours, I was convinced I had found my answer, total epiphany. And I believe I was right. I mean, I still believe I was right. And it's turned out to be much, much more than autism. Um, I believe now that uh, glyphosate is, you would pick it as number one. When you look at all the uh, chemicals in our environment, of course, we have many, many chemicals. I believe glyphosate is the most important one associated with many, many diseases that are also going up dramatically in today's world. So when you see any kind of a nation that starts eating you know, the, the, the Western food, all the processed foods, they start getting fat, they start getting diabetes, they start, their autism rates start going up, their Alzheimer's rates start going up, all those things start happening once they adopt a Western diet. And I think the reason is glyphosate. The primary reason is glyphosate. Wow. Yeah, that's a big, a big statement, but I, I'm totally behind you. And I think you're just so knowledgeable and I trust what you say. And I think people after listening to this episode will start to understand a bit more the dangers of these chemicals and how it could be impacting their health because I think it's very hidden by the industry because it is a huge money-making pesticide so I think to start off we'll get into the autism connection and all of that but I think people need to understand what glyphosate actually is so could you tell us what it is where it's found is it worldwide and what other health risks associated Right. Okay. Again, a big question. But I know. Sorry. Uh, no, no, it's true. It's just it's all a big topic. Glyphosate is by far the most used herbicide on the planet. So it kills weeds. It kills all plants, actually, except for those that have been engineered through an insertion of a bacterial gene to resist it. And so they came up with this idea of the GMO Roundup Ready crop. So Roundup is what you may be familiar with. A very, very common chemical. You can go, it's, you know, it's, it's widely available. You don't yeah. have to have any kind of regulatory restriction on it. And uh, you can use it to kill the weeds in your yard, you know, in your, in your driveway or in your walkway or, you know, any kind of weed you want to kill, just spray some glyphosate on it, no problem. Roundup. Um, mm-hmm. So the Roundup is a, is a formulation. And there are many, many different formulations with different names that are used. But uh, glyphosate is, so it's used very commonly uh, by people, random people in their yards, which I think is also a serious problem. Some, some kids are getting exposed because their parents just don't realize uh, how dangerous it is because we've all been told it's extremely safe it's harmless to humans and it's hard to wrap your brain around the idea that that's not true you know at this point because you've just been told it so many times it's hard not to believe that and it's hard to believe that they could have been so wrong you know yep. and um, it's in all over the food supply it's uh, you know it's being found now people are looking for it mostly it's not the regulatory agencies the U.S. government Uh, knows there's lots of glyphosate in the food. They don't even bother to test it. It's like, of course it's there. It's expensive to test. Why do we care? It's harmless. Fine. You know, this is how the U.S. government views it. Uh, Canada actually took an initiative, and I think Canada was the most um, impressive country in terms of actually measuring for glyphosate. And they recently measured some 8,000 different food samples for glyphosate and reported the results and gave them to an activist who was the one who was harassing them to do it. His name is Tony Mitra. He's awesome. He's an Indian descent, a Canadian citizen, Tony Mitra, friend of mine. And he's just been fantastic out there really, you know, bothering the government and letting them know we have a problem here. And um, so he, so he wrote a book called Poison Foods of North America, 
which is available. Uh, you can get an ebook in, on, um, on the web and has all this data in it. And, uh, and it's very discouraging because there's very high levels in surprising places like uh, garbanzo beans and chickpeas. They sort of had the highest levels of anything that was tested. Um, uh, lentils, so all these legumes. Mm-hmm. And that's because it's not because they're GMO, they're not GMO. So you see non-GMO, great, I'll buy that, uh, loaded with glyphosate because they were sprayed right before harvest and it goes into the, into the seed. So the, the plant takes up the glyphosate and puts it into the food right before it dies. And this is true for wheat and barley and rye as well. And so, and also um, sugarcane is sprayed right before harvest, so mm-hmm. it's in the sugar. Um, wheat is a serious problem. I think celiac disease, the incidence is now something like 1% of the population. And I believe it is a direct hit. Glyphosate, I've written papers, um, at least one paper, and I'm working on a second one that shows how glyphosate could be uh, implicated in the uh, increase in celiac disease. That's gluten intolerance. And many people are saying, no, I'm, I'm not celiac, but I don't eat wheat because, you know, I have sensitivities. And um, so it's not just the celiac population, but the wheat is contaminated with glyphosate. Generally, it comes up pretty high levels in different wheat products and things that are really popular with children. Oats is another one, by the way, that's sprayed right before harvest, very high levels. Cheerios, um, oatmeal. Uh, there's a, a paper out of Brazil that I just saw where they were measuring the amounts in baby formula, soy-based baby formula. And they found it in lots of different uh, Brazilian formulas, uh, up to levels of 1,000 parts per, per, per billion. So that is a huge amount mm-hmm. um, in terms of, um, it sounds small, a billion, but it's yeah. parts per billion is what you're measuring. And over 1,000 parts per billion is one of the highest levels you see. And you're seeing that also in the chickpeas and the garbanzo beans. So, and, and the Cheerios have high levels and, um, you know, goldfish crackers, Oreo cookies, these things that are very popular with the children have high levels of glyphosate. So our kids are all being poisoned by this chemical every day, pretty much. And if it was so harmful to our health, like why is it still used? Why is it not banned now? Well, because everyone's being told it's not harmful. That's the thing. They were being told it's a beautiful chemical. It's got a very specific target. It, it, it wrecks the, the plants because it interferes with a particular uh, enzyme in the shikimate pathway, which is a pathway that a biological pathway that human cells don't have. So yeah, 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 we're fine. You know, this is the argument that's used. And it's particularly not valid because our gut bacteria have the chicken mate pathway and they use that pathway to produce uh, the aromatic amino acids, which are, you know, three of the 20 coding amino acids in DNA code, absolutely essential for protein building. Uh, But also those are precursors to all kinds of important biologically active molecules, such as all the... um, all, this, all the hormones like serotonin, melatonin, dopamine, thyroid hormone, all of those come out of that chicobane pathway. And also folate, the B vitamin. And um, so the bacteria normally are making these aromatic amino acids for us, for their host, using their shikimate pathway that's being busted by glyphosate. This mm-hmm. is what I think is happening. It's a critical piece of the puzzle. Okay. So when you get serotonin deficiency, you get things like depression you know, or violent behavior. And, um, and then melatonin comes from serotonin, so you get sleep disorder. We have an epidemic. I've looked at sleep disorder from data from the, from the web and perfect match. The rise in issues with sleep disorder matches perfectly with the rise in glyphosate usage on core crops. And sleep disorder is connected to a whole bunch of other things. Yeah, so Exactly. If you're not sleeping, then you, your um, energy levels and obviously your immune system, it's just a knock-on effect from there. And I know the connection between glyphosate and the amino acid glycine but what are the yes. other two amino acids that are affected? 
Well, so there's, yeah, there's four because glycine is actually a fourth one. Okay. The aromatic amino acids are the three that are produced by the shikimate pathway and glyphosate disrupts that enzyme. I believe it disrupts it by actually substituting for a glycine residue in the enzyme. So glycine is another amino acid. That's the fourth one. And it totally messes up glycine everywhere it goes. Glycine is also a neurotransmitter. So it messes up glycine as a neurotransmitter and it messes up glycine in the, in the proteins, which is where it gets really interesting because of my belief, and I think the evidence is overwhelming, but I'm being told that it's impossible. So this is a very controversial topic. I am claiming, and I'm claiming it very strongly, that glyphosate is actually getting into proteins by mistake in place of glycine, because it is a complete glycine molecule. Glyphosate is a beautiful glycine molecule. The only difference is it has some extra material stuck onto its nitrogen atom. So the, the system is not paying attention to the nitrogen atom, it's looking at the rest of it, and it says, oh, this matches beautifully. So it puts it right into the pocket, and then it's good to go, and so it assembles it into the, into the protein where glycine should go. But glyphosate is very, very different from glycine because it has this extra bulky stuff that has this negative charge uh, and it make it water soluble. So it totally disrupts certain proteins that have glycine residues that are super important to them. So it's mm -hmm. really quite interesting to go through the research literature, finding the proteins that would be predicted to be affected by glyphosate. Yeah. And of course, it fits beautifully for EPSP synthase, which is the one in the shikimate pathway that it famously disrupts, that protein has a highly conserved glycine residue at the place where its substrate called PEP binds. PEP has a phosphate. Glyphosate has a methylphosphonate, which looks very similar to phosphate. Glyphosate comfortably puts its methylphosphonate in the spot where PEP is supposed to go. So it's, it's part of the protein that's sticking into the hole where the substrate's supposed to fit. Now the substrate can't fit. So the uh, protein is, can't work anymore. So I believe that is a, the reason why. That's how it's, it suppresses PEP, EPSP mm -hmm. synthase. And if that's true, you can then look for other proteins that have exactly that same setup. You know, there are human proteins that also have highly conserved glycines at places where phosphate binds, very specific. There are many. And certain ones are super, super important. You know, there's one that's a very uh, important regulatory protein for uh, for all the metabolism of glucose and whatnot. And so it gets like gluconeogenesis, which is called when the liver has to make glucose because the blood sugar is too low, it needs to use this protein that is exactly like EPSP synthase, also binds PEP at a place where there is a highly conserved glycine. So I predict it would affect that protein as well. So you can mm -hmm. find other proteins that it would affect uh, the same way that it affects the one that it famously affects. And then you can explain what you see because glyphosate, so this is going to cause liver disease. You can predict that if that enzyme's not working, it's called PEPCK. If it's not working, you're going to get fatty liver disease. You're going to get elevated um, AST and ALT. These are enzymes, liver enzymes that they say, oh, you've got liver disease. So all these markers of liver disease are going to show up if that enzyme's not working. And it's been shown in many studies that, that glyphosate below regulatory limits causes exactly this kind of liver disease in rats and other animals. So there's many animal studies that show that the liver's very sensitive to glyphosate at low levels. Mm -hmm. And I predict it's because of messing up the same, this other enzyme that has the same pattern as EPSP synthase. So this is where I'm going is I'm looking at rummaging through the literature, finding proteins. It's quite a fun exercise because you can say, okay, Alzheimer's is going up dramatically in step with glyphosate. What is it that causes Alzheimer's? Does that protein have glycine sensitivities? Would it make sense? And almost always the answer is yes. So I'm doing this with many different diseases and mm -hmm. finding specific proteins that are uh, likely to be disrupted by glyphosate if it does indeed substitute for glycine. 
And then I see that those proteins are going up exactly in step with glyphosate usage. So those diseases are going up. The next clip is from Lily Nichols, and we're talking about why it's crucial to prep your body as far in advance as possible when you're trying to conceive and want to get pregnant. So this is from episode 21, Real Food for Pregnancy, Prenatal Supplements and Folic Acid versus Folate with Lily Nichols. I'm so glad that I know this information so early on in life. Otherwise, I would have unfortunately been one of the people destined for infertility, or I may not have had the healthiest children because I had so many nutrient deficiencies from the pill and gut issues, thyroid issues. And obviously this isn't shaming anyone who's fallen pregnant right after stopping the pill or as a mother and has only just started on their health journey, but it's never too late to start implementing some of these suggestions that I make on the podcast and during this episode. In this clip, Lily shares the conventional American food guidelines for pregnancy and why they're, they're so terrible compared to what she promotes. Pretty much it's going to be the same for other countries like the UK now. Her philosophy is pretty much exactly what I promote. So if you want to get an overview and just recap what foods you should be eating on, what nutrients you should be focusing on, then go back and listen to this episode because it's quite early on. So she promotes real food, nutrient density, and takes inspiration from our ancestors as well. The basis of conventional prenatal nutrition guidelines are um, in the US, 45 to 65% of your calories coming from carbohydrates. So there's a pretty heavy emphasis on uh, lots of grains uh, in the diet. And then um, minimizing your intake of saturated fat and cholesterol, minimizing your intake of salt, minimizing your intake of red meat, so focusing on, on lean proteins. Um, and of course, all the guidelines recommend produce, fresh produce, fruits and vegetables, which I don't think whatever side of the coin mm -hmm. you're on, everybody agrees yeah. produce is good. Um, <laughs> Probably the one thing that everyone does agree on, I guess. Um, but the the conventional guidelines really it's interesting because they push this high carb diet by and then by minimizing your um your allowance for fat and cholesterol they by default minimize your intake of a lot of foods that are actually really nutrient dense so foods that would provide you naturally with a lot of highly absorbable iron with B12 with choline. Some of these nutrients are really vital for um, fetal development or avoiding anemia. And instead, they kind of try to make up the, the lack with fortified foods. So sure, you won't get much iron if you're not eating much red meat because red meat has saturated fat and you're not supposed to eat that. But, you know, just eat this fortified cereal that has iron added back and you're good to go. So it's a different way of looking at food where we're kind of, it's, it's a bit of a top-down nutritionism approach where you're looking at specific nutrients in isolation and not necessarily considering like the whole in which they came from, which to me is more of a real food focus when you're looking at whole unprocessed foods that provide a whole complement of micronutrients and you look at reverse engineering an optimal prenatal diet that meets all of your micronutrient needs from food mostly, which, which actually can be mostly done, um, you get a much different picture of what might be an optimal 
prenatal diet and you get a much different picture of how that toys out macronutrient wise as well. It's just, it's going to be really hard to meet all your micronutrient needs from food if half or more than half of your diet is coming from carbs. It's just, it's just fact of life. You run a nutrient analysis and it comes up very clear. Yeah. And yeah, I don't even understand how they think it's the same fortifying foods with certain nutrients like iron, um, folic acid, and how they believe that that's just the same as the food version. It's absolutely not the same. (laughs) And why, why is the conventional um, recommendation, why, why is it so high in carbohydrates and why are they limiting certain things like cholesterol? Is it just due to old, outdated research? Yes. Okay. <laughs> in a nutshell. Yeah. It's related to, because all of, all of the guidelines for specific age groups are just an extrapolation of the guidelines for the general population. So, you know, these guidelines, which came out in the early 1980s, they were based on this foundation of what we now know as kind of flawed research, that saturated fat and cholesterol intake were going to increase your risk of heart disease, and therefore we should reduce our intake of those foods, and instead that the, the balance ends up being you eat a lot more carbohydrates when your diet is lower in fat. It's just sort of like a, it's a given. Um, so yes, it's based on outdated information primarily with regards to um, the the potential, what they thought were the heart damaging effects of saturated fat and cholesterol. And now we have, you know, 30, 40 years of data showing us that, oh, wait, there's no correlation between saturated fat intake and heart disease. Oh, wait, there's no correlation between cholesterol intake and heart disease. Cholesterol intake doesn't even impact your cholesterol levels. (laughs) Um, And so that whole, you know, diet, heart, hypothesis, lipid hypothesis has been debunked, but these things still carry forward for a really long time. And they say there's an average of about 17 years for new research to make it into clinical practice. You find that that gap is even larger when it comes to revising dietary guidelines, revising public policy. Mm. So it's, it's a matter of time that this will shift, but these are, you know, strongly held incorrect beliefs that have been around for decades and it's really hard to um, fight against something that has been doctrine for so long Mm -hmm. and how long how long are you estimating that it's going to take are we saying 10 20 30 years before the real food approach and fat being good for us and not bad for us when when do you think that will be common common knowledge i don't know i think a lot of it depends on who we have working on our dietary guidelines mm-hmm. so a cool story a positive story is the czech republic actually revised their dietary guidelines for pregnancy specifically related to gestational diabetes in 2016 um, after a doctor read my book real food for gestational diabetes Whoa. and and learned some new information and put it into practice and started seeing improved outcomes with her, with her patients. And so they actually revised their guidelines rather quickly. Mm. Um, And instead of having a minimum requirement for carbohydrates in pregnancy, they reversed their 
guidelines to set that previous minimum as the recommended maximum intake of carbohydrates for pregnancy. So a, a complete 180. Yeah. Um, now this is a, a smaller country. And so there's probably, that probably plays into how it's maybe easier, fewer conflicts of interest, maybe going into um, changing around the guidelines. But I think a lot of it depends on a getting like good research out there. We need people to continue to put out research year after year after year on these topics. And then clinicians and practitioners to speak up to the people who are working on the policy. I have no idea when it's going to shift in the U S but we have seen little like quiet things shift, like in the American heart association, they have kind of taken out a lot of their language telling you to minimize your intake of cholesterol. Yeah which previously was like their number one priority for heart patients was to eat less cholesterol, eat less eggs. And now they've just kind of quietly removed it, Mm -hmm. but they haven't necessarily publicly come out and been like, well, everything we told you for the last 30 years was incorrect and we're changing it. They've just removed a lot of that verbiage. So I don't know. I'm hopeful that it's, you know, in the next five to 10 years, but I'm certainly not holding my breath. Hmm. Yeah, we need someone like you on all the nutrition boards across the world, <laughs> just preaching yeah, all of this information. Yeah. <laughs> and why is nutrition so important when it comes to pregnancy? So for preconception health, for the actual pregnancy itself and postpartum, can we really influence the the health of our body and our child's body through the food that we eat? We absolutely can. So a lot of this, if you have the luxury of planning a pregnancy, comes back to how healthy is the mother going into pregnancy? So like at the time of conception, how healthy is she? Because the several months leading up to pregnancy play a role in her egg health. And of course, the health of the egg and the health of the sperm is important for those early weeks of development to go as planned. Um, the first eight weeks of pregnancy are when all of the internal organs in their basic structure are formed. The neural tube, the, the earliest part of brain development, um, that's fully closed by about 12 weeks. So we're looking at the first trimester as a really important time for avoiding um, some of the most serious issues with pregnancy, like a loss of a pregnancy, miscarriage, um, or other deformities like spina bifida or neural tube defects or other other abnormalities um, beyond that beyond that early window so i do want to say like yes absolutely we know that health going into pregnancy is important what you're eating during pregnancy granted the first trimester is like a bit of a crapshoot on how well <laughs> you can eat because usually you're pretty nauseous yeah. <laughs> or have food aversions this is why this like the preconception stuff is really helpful to build up your nutrition stores. But once you can like get back to eating more real food, you can influence your risk of certain pregnancy complications um, based on food and your nutrient intake. So for example, we know like adequate amounts of iron, B12, vitamin D, um, those can all reduce your risk of preterm labor pretty significantly. We know number of nutrients can influence your risk for gestational diabetes or preeclampsia. So it it, it just could make for a much smoother, 
healthier pregnancy, help your body adapt to the really high nutritional and physical demands of pregnancy itself. And then there's the benefits to your baby as well. So we know that, yes, your baby inherits your genetics, what you and your partner or father of the baby, um, what genes are going in at the very beginning, but we can also influence how those genes are expressed, which is called epigenetics. So how you might have a gene for a higher risk of type 2 diabetes, for example, but given optimal conditions in pregnancy, you might actually pre-program the epigenetics in a better way to actually reduce your child's risk of developing diabetes later in life. Or on the flip side, maybe things aren't going as well. Maybe your blood sugar is really high. Maybe there's a high intake of trans fats. Maybe there's some nutrient deficiencies and that could do the opposite. It can increase the child's risk of developing type 2 diabetes and do so at, a, and at an earlier age than we might expect otherwise. So there's, a, we can influence how likely our, our child is going to face adverse health outcomes later in life. We certainly have a whole body of research on brain development. So there's a lot of nutrients that play a really important role in brain development and that uh, can be tied back to a mother's nutrient intake and nutrient status during pregnancy. So that's a whole gamut of micronutrients, but DHA, choline, um, iron, B12, iodine, just to name a few, um, are some of the ones that we have pretty strong data showing that if we can optimize intake of those nutrients, we can actually end up with children who score better on cognitive tests and are less at risk for having um, developmental delays or delays in motor skill development or speech issues or any, anything like that. Now we're switching gears from food and nutrition and the focus of the next clip is on circadian rhythm, which is our body clock. It's from episode number 53, the importance of circadian rhythm for hormone health, Blue, blocking blue lights and sleep packs with Andy Mant. This is so important for overall health as human beings, but particularly for anything related to the female menstrual cycle, as we are in sync or should be with the sun and the moon, the light and the dark cycles. Sunlight gets such a bad rap these days and we're told to avoid it because of things like skin cancer, which obviously is important for a subset of the population. However, avoiding sun exposure completely is one of the worst things that you can ever do for your health, unless you're at very high risk of developing skin cancer, then obviously be careful. Sunlight isn't just about getting vitamin D either, so that's why we can't just stay indoors and supplement. I would highly recommend checking out blue light blocking glasses from the company Blue Blocks to protect yourself from the artificial room lighting and blue light from devices that we're all bombarded by all day, every day particularly in the evenings when we should be mimicking sunset. It's one of the best and most effective purchases I've ever made for my hormonal health and sleep quality. You can use the code HORMONES15 for 15% off and the website is blueblocks.com. That's B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. Blue light in isolation has these characteristics. It increases cortisol, it increases dopamine, it increases serotonin, okay? They're the good things um, if, it's, if it's in isolation. You want that during the day. It also does some negative things, okay? So blue light is very high energy, so it damages cells in your skin and in your eyes. 
it excites um, obviously molecules in your body, which can cause things like dry eyes, you know, headaches, that type of that type of thing. So nature always has a um, counter sort of balance to things to restore homeostasis. Now, artificial light is very much blue light in isolation. Okay, so there's not really much of the much of any other color in it. There's a lot of blue, a lot of green, a little bit of yellow, a little bit of orange, and pretty much no red. Okay, and that's in LED artificial fluorescent lights. Now, when you look at sunlight, sunlight is balanced in every single color. So the amount of blue, green, yellow, amber, and red is all pretty much the same. Now, what each color in the spectrum does is it does something different to our hormones and our physiological well-being. Um, and red light, for instance, which is at the complete other end of the spectrum of blue, is a restorative color. It restores, it repairs, and um, protects. So, for instance, if you're outside during the day and blue light, you're being exposed to blue light, you're getting all those amazing benefits because it's natural, it's coming in from the sun, but it is still damaging your skin and it is still damaging your eyes. However, the red light in the sun is repairing any of that cell damage and clearing out any dead cells and repairing and regenerating the damage that the blue is causing. So that's why it's a very good source of, of light, natural light. The issue with blue light is because it doesn't have any of that red light in it and it's very high in blue, we're getting cortisol switched on from um, not just the daylight hours, but during the nighttime as well, when there should actually naturally and ancestrally be no blue light. Um, but we're also getting, um, we're getting too much blue light into our eyes, too much cell damage, too much mitochondrial damage, and then none of the restorative red light because we're rarely going outside to get the, um, the, the counter effects. So that is why blue light is so bad. On, on, during the day, it's too much of it, no repair, digitalized strain, macular degeneration, headaches, migraines, fatigue. After dark, when you look at our ancestors, they would have um, you know, sat around a campfire maybe. That's all red light and orange light. Whereas now we're coming home, we're switching on um, our lights, which is in, in essence telling our brain to keep cortisol levels high, which is not good because after dark we need low levels of cortisol because melatonin can only be released in the absence of blue light after dark optimally, but also cortisol levels need to be lower for melatonin to be secreted um, so we've just got to be very mindful that you know how we evolved ancestrally was under a circadian rhythm so a circadian rhythm is a uh, it's latin circa and dian about a day so all the cells in our body run on this circadian rhythm and it it's basically matches the spin of the earth so during the day um, cues from light from the sun tell our brain that it's daytime to release specific hormones and neuropeptides and then after the sun sets and darkness sets in and we just have firelight, those signals of light and darkness send messages to our brains to switch off other hormones like cortisol, switch on melatonin, for instance. So when we're putting on these little alien suns in our house after dark, like um, our TV, our smartphone, our LED lights, opening the fridge to cook dinner, there's an LED light in there. That blue light sends a message to our brain that it's daytime, keep cortisol levels high, and then don't, don't produce as much melatonin. So we wreck our sleep, we feel you know, really crappy the next day, really fatigued and tired. And we think we can cope in the short term. And we, we probably can in our 20s, because you know, I remember in my 20s going out for two, week, two nights over a weekend on, on the beers and um, getting in at three in the morning and then getting up at about midday and doing the same thing again. But 
now you get a bit older, you realize, wow, that was wreaking havoc on my circadian rhythms and you start to develop issues. And in my case, it was gaining a lot of weight and having a lot of health issues like kidney stones and having my appendix out in my sort of mid twenties. Um, so these things, you know, you can cope with in the short term, but in the long term, you're going to lead to things like hormone disruption can lead to chronic issues in, you know, things like sort of um, anxiety, depression, stress, and, you know, fertility issues as well, and, and insomnia. And you're seeing all these issues now in the younger generation, the millennials that have grown up under more intense artificial light, and they are getting anxiety in their teens and 20s, they're getting depression, they're getting obesity a lot um, younger. Um, blue light negatively impacts in isolation. Blood glucose levels, it rise, makes them rise along with microwaves, EMF, Wi-Fi. So we've put ourselves in this environment and our kids in this environment where you know, diseases that, and, and mental health issues that perhaps people got in their 60s, 70s and 80s for, from our parents' um, point of view, People are now getting in their teens and 20s and it's, you know, light is contributing and, and misappropriated light management is contributing to this epidemic when you actually look at some of the literature. Absolutely. And I know it's hard to know an exact number or, but just in your opinion, how much do you think is due to light and circadian rhythm imbalances with some of these chronic health issues or hormonal imbalances and sleep disturbances as opposed to the diet and lifestyle um, high sugar intake, imbalanced blood sugar, environmental toxins, like what ratio do you think sleep and circadian rhythm play? Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a great question. And, you know, most of the light gurus would sit here and say 100%, but I, I don't classify myself as a guru. I, I class myself, classify myself as an evidence-based sort of practitioner. Um, and I don't think one thing regards to lifestyle is more important than the, in, than the next. But I feel that if one of them is out of sync, you might as well not bother with the others. So for instance, I believe that light management is very, very key. Light hygiene has to be corrected. I think that you need to address your non-native EMF exposure. Um, I believe that people need to ground more and be um, also exposed to more extremes in temperature, so cold and heat. I believe that um, nutrition plays a, plays a key role when it comes to seasonality of eating in line with your genealogy and ancestry. And I also believe that exercise plays a key role. Now, one thing that covers every, so all these are sort of in my mind, like vertical sort of pillars of health. And then what sits above every single one of them is circadian rhythms. And each one of those facets that I've spoken about all comes down to circadian timing. So the time you eat your food, the time you exercise, the time you um, want to ground, the time you want to expose yourself to blue um, light, red light, green lights, etc. It all comes back to circadian rhythms. And, um, you know, it's, it's light is the biggest cue of, of our master clock. And um, it's the master clock is located sort of um, right in the middle of the brain, the, central, uh, the super charismatic nucleus, and it's entrained by light. OK, but. Every single cell in our body has its own circadian rhythm as well. It has its own little clock. So I like to explain that you have an orchestra of clocks. So the orchestra is made up of lots of different instruments. So say, for instance, your liver clock, your pancreas clock, your skin clock, your heart clock, your brain clock, everything, all very different. Okay. Now, the main conductor of that orchestra is your central clock, which is entrained by light. 
So if that central conductor is off, it's, it's sort of conducting, the, the, the peripheral clocks in all the other cells aren't going to function properly. And the same is true the other way around. If the peripheral clocks aren't functioning properly, so if your pancreas clock isn't functioning properly, properly you're going to have a problem with insulin um, sensitivity or sensitivity or insulin resistance, blood glucose problems. If your liver clock isn't functioning, well, you're going to have problems with, with, with liver-related um, diseases. If you're going to have an off um, heart circadian rhythm, you're going to have heart problems. Um, so you need to sync each and every clock in your body in line with that master clock. And, and the ways to do that is in training your brain um, and, and the supra and the master clock um, through sunlight in the morning when the sun rises, that, that entrains the master clock. But also having your largest meal at the beginning of the day within four hours of awakening to entrain those um, sort of liver and pancreas and digestive clocks. And you also find that when you've got a properly functioning circadian rhythm, leptin, ghrelin and neuropeptides are also optimal in the morning period. So that's when you want to be eating. They're not optimal after dark. You're more insulin resistant after dark. You're more insulin resistant if you eat under artificial light. Studies have shown this. Um, and then to entrain your skeletal muscle clock, you want to be working out in the morning. So you want all these clocks entrained at the same time, or you're going to throw off um, that hormonal balance within your system. So, you know, you may have, say, and these are just throwaway numbers, 100 clocks in your, in your body, in your organs or what have you, and then you've got your master clock. If 99 of those clocks are functioning correctly, but your I don't know, say the clock system in your ovaries or in your placenta is not functioning properly, um, very high areas of melatonin production in those two areas, by the way, um, then you could be in 99% peak physical fitness and condition, but you'll be more susceptible to developing ovarian cancer or polycystic ovary um, conditions. So you've got to just make sure that it's not this sort of, you know, throw away light right it's all about light it's all about timing of light yes it is it's very important don't get me wrong but you've got to look at the circadian aspects of other clock systems as well and to be fair when you start looking at the the literature behind this it's not as daunting as i as i sort of make out it's more or less the same in every situation like people that go to go to bed earlier will have like just from a reproductive standpoint people who go to bed earlier will be able to conceive a lot easier men will have higher testosterone less levels less um sort of sperm antibodies estrogen levels will be more balanced in women that go to bed early and wake with the sunrise so when you actually start looking at the literature it is actually a lot of a lot of similarities in each of how each of the clock system works so as long as you're getting up in the morning, watching the sunrise, managing light throughout the day, not exposing yourself to artificial light after dark, wearing blue light glasses, etc., um, and doing a few other hacks related to light, which we can come on to later, you're going to have a good time, um, you know, really mastering your, um, your hormones. Another one of my personal favorites and one of the most popular episodes was on the root causes of chronic illness. Things like environmental toxicity, trauma, and chronic infections. This was from episode number 84, Are Stealth Infections Wrecking Your Hormones with Dr. Jessica Petros, also known as Dr. Jess on Instagram. Even when I was studying at college, this wasn't emphasized enough. But the more experience I've had personally and clinically, I really agree with the root causes of the majority, if not all chronic health symptoms, are these things. Sure, some people might just have a vitamin D deficiency driving the joint pain. 
But for one, why are you vitamin D deficient in the first place? Is it because you ha also have a magnesium deficiency, which is a cofactor for vitamin D absorption because of glyphosate, so toxicity in the soil or heavy metals depleting that? Or is it that you're not spending time outdoors because you're glued to your devices and you're just in your home all the time? And secondly, I'm mainly talking about those with more long-term and reoccurring issues, like I mentioned earlier. Sadly, your conventionally trained medical doctor is probably never going to mention these factors, but I wanted you to make sure that you have this information. So then as I got into integrative medicine, I actually got into Gerson through cancer. And then I started asking, well, what causes cancer? What causes people to be in pain? And about 25 to 30% of that are pathogens and hidden infections. And, you know, the other... 75% are emotions and environmental toxicities and heavy metals and plastics and pesticides. And if I was really going to heal people and get them off medicine, how was I going to do it? I had to get to the root cause of what was causing all these chronic illnesses, regardless of what label or diagnosis it was. And what I've come to find out is it's only the things I listed that cause disease in people and change our genes epigenetically. And so if I, I really want to get to the root cause, and if I was a hormone specialist, I feel like I wouldn't be doing that. If I was you know, a health or fitness specialist, I feel like I'd only be addressing part of the cause. This way, I can address everything that makes people sick in my opinion. And that's what made me want to go into that. Yeah. Before we started recording, I was sharing a bit about my experience mm -hmm. with the exact same thing. So um, we don't really have naturopathic doctors here in the UK. So I'm a naturopathic nutritionist. We get study, we awesome. study in kind of a naturopathic approach, um, but can't prescribe or diagnose um, and things like that. And for the first few years I was, well, and still, I, I say that I, I work a lot with hormonal issues and so balancing um, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, those types of things, working with PCOS. But then I think for my own health, I was given a kick up the bum and thought, <laughs> okay, you've been looking at a surface level for yourself for too long and we need to look under the hood at what's going on. And for me, it was mold, um, potentially Lyme, um, some of these kind of infections in the body. So that's kind of got me on my journey and in looking into more of these things as well. And are there any common symptoms or maybe conditions that people are diagnosed with that could be as a result of these infections? You mentioned one of them, fibromyalgia. Mm -hmm. Definitely um, is things like mold and Lyme. 100%, even parasites that can get in the muscles and cause point tenderness all over the body. This is usually due to a pathogen and toxicities in the body. And more often than not, I do see Lyme with it. Um, Bell's palsy. Another reason for Lyme disease, half paralysis of the face. Um, I, I just mentioned on Instagram yesterday, my best friend's nephew got bit by a tick and then woke up two weeks later with a debilitating headache and paralysis of the face. And that's acute Lyme disease. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, it's a great mimicker, right? Um, with mold, things like uh, type three Alzheimer's, a lot of dementia properties, um, a lot of uh, anxiety, depression, or hidden infections. Um, there's a reason that people's bodies are going haywire. POTS, which is postural orthostatic tachycardic syndrome. Um, man, Western medicine will put you on a tilt table test and spin you around upside down. If you pass out, they say you have POTS and here's a beta blocker <laughs> medication for it. And I'm like, great. Okay. You, they passed out. They have POTS. Why? Why? And it's a pathogen the body is seeing. Um, so there's so many of these examples like these where there's a deeper cause to a labeled diagnosis. Could you talk about the whole germ theory? So is it that we want to get rid of these completely? Is that even possible? Or is it uh, the goal is to strengthen our own 
kind of um, vitality. Correct. Because I feel like, honestly, we all have a little bit different haplotypes and genetic predispositions and whatnot, but we all have some pretty similar exposures. There are certain things that are just ubiquitous in the environment, in the water supply, in the soil, that all of us get exposed to. And depending on those genes, it depends on how we react to that. So people in general, you know, we're made up of billions of bacteria. They've recently found a human virome where we have viruses that actually um, help bacteria to protect us. Um, we even have fungus and candida that are supposed to be there in certain levels kept in check. When the problem arises is when we have um, a pathobiome. So your microbiome in your gut can actually convert over to a pathobiome. And this can happen for a number of different reasons. One scientific example we have is that people after surgery or a car accident, their gut bacteria change almost immediately into more of a pathogenic species. And so this can happen in people during a stressor, during an emotional event, during a physically emotional event. Um, and really stay that way. And so the things you're exposed to, lime, spirochetes, mold, it can kind of turn a tipping point when you have those stressors on top of everything. So your normal microbiome that protects you can turn into a pathobiome, which is more not protective of people, right? Um, and so we are made of germs. We are microbes. We are more microbes than cells. We don't want to kill off a bunch of viruses or a bunch of bacteria. They're also protective. We want to live in harmony with them because we've evolved for millions of years together. Um, where we're not living in harmony is when things grow out of sorts and are not kept in check. And that is because of the eradication of, an, of a good microbiome with antibiotics and steroids and pesticides. It's the exact same thing we're doing to the earth. And so as above, so below, if you strip soil, you have microbes that you don't want overgrowing in the soil, same as our gut, right? And so we can't just eradicate everything. We really have to learn to live in harmony and learn to work with the earth. Now, it's maybe a similar question, but do you feel like these infections and um, mold and things like that are becoming more prevalent or is it just that they're more recognized at this point and we're sicker as a population, maybe a little bit of both? I actually feel like mold has been able to grow out beyond where it's supposed to be. Like if you would look at a little Petri dish in the lab, it would be growing out of the Petri dish because of the eradication of some of the protective microbes that we've had in the environment. Um, another thing is the way we build houses now is completely wrong. Um, I know energy efficient is all the hype right now. Unfortunately, that usually means there's poor airflow because there's, they're tighter. And where there's less F airflow, there are more mold spores typically. And DMFs. There's yes. um, Dr. Klinkhart, who did the kind of yes. study with the Petri dish next to the Wi-Fi box, and it exploded in mycotoxins yes. by 600 times. Yes, so, exactly. Like more energy-efficient <laughs> houses, faster Wi-Fi speed, but probably more um, illness because of that. Correct. Exactly. And, you know, it's, it's very important. People really think that it's just their bodies. It's just in their genes. And it's not. I really encourage people to look at the perfect storm that happened when you originally got sick, where you were, look at your environment, really look outside your body for things that are not supposed to be there because the body is really the most intelligent doctor out there. And I know you work with a lot of really sick people. Is there kind of a, a process like where you start off, say either parasites, do you start with the mold, mm -hmm. which is kind of the worst one? <laughs> Right. They're all pretty bad. Honestly, I'll be for real. There's never just one pathogen. It's always a soup or a bunch of frenemies. I like to call them that work together. 
Um, and really the top three that I see are Lyme and tick associated illnesses, mold and parasites. And typically if there's one present, you've usually got at least one other one. Mm -hmm. So, so I really tackle those all at once actually. And to be honest with you, I don't do a lot of testing. I do more questioning and spending time with patients and listening to their bodies and what they say and, and really listening. And that has served me better than doing all these erroneous tests and spot treating everything. So really I'll get a pretty good idea of what's going on by talking to someone, test, maybe one or two tests if I need to. And then um, based on what I find, you know, if I find parasites, I can almost guarantee there are heavy metals. Mm -hmm. They run together. And what do you think that is? The parasites eat the heavy metals. There's mm -hmm. an affinity for them. So if you have heavy metals in your body, you're more of a sitting duck for a parasitic infestation. Um, so I can almost guarantee those things come hand in hand. So I'll tackle all at once. And I have a protocol where I work at opening drainage pathways rather than focusing on killing a certain microbe. The body is blocked and is not able to release the toxin exposure it's having on a daily basis. And that's the problem. It's not just one pathogen, it's a number. It's a soup of toxicities. Last but certainly not least is my episode on mindset, thoughts, and trauma affecting your health. This is from episode number 76, Your Childhood Biography Becomes Adult Biology with Nikki Gratrix. Nikki was a practitioner initially specializing in chronic fatigue syndrome, but soon found out that a lot of her clients couldn't fully recover until they addressed their mental, emotional traumas and stresses. Please don't overlook this aspect of healing. Everyone has blocks limiting beliefs and life stuff that just that's happened and it doesn't need to be a big or big t it's known as big trauma like abuse rape or childhood neglect like most people think of when they hear trauma you'd be surprised how many of my clients with even things like acne and skin issues have issues with being seen or don't feel safe in the world to show their true selves and that's reflecting with the the symptoms and they're literally creating this physical mask to the world so that's just one example or those with terrible period problems despite eating a great diet and quote doing all the right things actually find full resolution after reconnecting to their feminine energy and or learning to love being a woman healing mother wounds there's so many emotional energetic connections so let's get into this final clip nikki shares more about the aces study which is one of the most important studies ever done, in my opinion. But we realise with illnesses like chronic fatigue, and there is definitely a hormonal aspect to that going on in, in that kind of chronic complex illness as well, we needed this mind and body approach because the mind and body are one thing. And what's going on in the psychology and the psyche is often just reflected in the biology. So we had a psychology division and a, um, the nutrition di division. And that sort of grew up sort of over uh, five years. We had 20 practitioners, patients in 40 different countries, and we won an award for outstanding practice and things like this. And we got published in the British Medical Journal, a preliminary study. So we're looking at both um, this concurrent approach that we needed. So that's, and then the next stage is I, I then realized um, emotional trauma, emotional stress was a massive factor in chronic fatigue. It's like the chronic fatigue is like the poster child for that. Um, but then I realized, though, it's the most underexposed risk factor for all chronic complex illnesses and, uh, you know, general health ailments, imbalances, you know, on that spectrum between not completely in a diagnosed disease state, just not feeling great and feeling out of balance and, you know, not feeling good, demotivated and kind of hormonal, shall we say. <laughs> so, um, 
so yes and then I, that's when we sort of transitioned a bit and we said we really need to highlight what's happening with the emotional stress and trauma thing which is which is a true massive silent epidemic that we are out there trying to advocate to get people to realize that this is underlying the vast majority of chronic complex illness and we don't have a good net definition yet of what trauma is and emotional stress and we can talk more about that i hope that makes sense definitely and i think a lot of people do they're aware that stress does worsen the condition or it just makes everything worse. People hear about that, but I don't think they actually know or understand what you mean by stress. So I know that you said there's not like a, a definite term and it's a little bit different for everyone, but how would you kind of describe stress and trauma? What do you actually mean by that? Yeah. So stress is a wildly overused word. And most people, when we talk about stress, they kind of think, it's things like too many emails to answer and taking the kids to school and pressure and workload and things like that. That's stress for sure. And we've got this sort of quite a narrow understanding of the impact of stress that it, it triggers this cortisol response and, you know, the biological changes in the body that occur ready for us to go into fight flight to, you know, to, to deal with the, whatever the stress may be. Now that, People generally, I think there is widespread understanding that stress definitely, I mean, it kills, it reduces lifespan. But what people don't realize is that most of the stress that we have is actually, it's systemic and it's already wired into our system before we even get to adulthood. So, because we have an epidemic of what's called attachment and developmental trauma. Now, um, or definitely attachment trauma. So, let me just sort of define this. So developmental trauma is anything that happens to you before age 18. And obviously developmental means it's trauma and stress that happens while we're still developing, while the brain is still developing. And what tends to happen in childhood is that if we have these stresses, we're literally rather than just being a temporary state that we move out of like we would in adulthood, those states become traits they become our identity so um, and what people also don't realize is that the vast majority of trauma and emotional stress from childhood comes from our attachment relations and that is the quality um, and the depth of the relations and the safety with our key caregivers which is our parents most of the time but, but not always so um, a lot of people just think of trauma and they think of war zones and car accidents or an assault. That's a discrete event that people can get diagnosed for PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. That's rare. It's pretty curable. The conventional mainstream medicine has a good thing. If you, if you suspect you have PTSD, get some EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and programming available on the NHS. So PTSD is, um, the symptoms would be definitely, you know, anxiety, mood changes, but often when anything that triggers you to remember something related to the event, the single event. With developmental trauma, it is when we don't get enough emotional validation, when we don't feel safe and validated as a child growing up, what happens is we start to internalize that and it basically causes autonomic um, imbalances. So it doesn't always mean stress, fight, flight response. There's something else called the threes response where we basically have parts of our psyche, energy and biology that kind of goes into freeze state. And clearly that causes you know, biological imbalances as well. 
So, and the thing is, it's not a discrete event. So attachment trauma, you know, it happens every day. <laughs> you know, it's kind of, it's these, it's what I almost call it ambient trauma or ambient imbalance. So it's, you know, chronically being verbally abused, for example. There's huge studies that have been done that show that attachment trauma has a massive impact on health across a lifetime. But they, they've included things like physical, emotional, or sexual abuse, physical or emotional neglect, domestic violence in the family, um, substance abuse, parents separating or divorce. How many of us have had that happen? So it's this ambient sort of uh, relational impact that it has on us as, as children. And because the child self-protection mechanisms are, we, that attachment relationship is key to the child's survival. So we could never sort of demonize the parent and say it's the parent's fault. We are always going to turn it on ourselves and say, whatever's not going on good here with this relation, <laughs> it's my fault. And then that manifests into all kinds of things, addiction behaviors, um, over-striving, over-giving, uh, it gets internalized into chronic anxiety. Um, it also causes freeze responses and attachment trauma freeze response. We're going to depression. Now, all of that change in the biochemistry absolutely impacts hormones as well. <laughs> and it will impact sex hormones. It will impact the adrenal hormones. Uh, in fact, it, interesting, we were just in the pre-interview, we were talking about weight gain. One of the... Uh, Things that there was a huge study done, I'll just mention. It was a big study done by Kaiser Permanente um, and the CDC in the US, 17,500 adults. And they found that looking at those, just those 10, which is, by the way, is not an exhaustive category of things. There's being a victim of homophobia, racism, you know, all kinds of things. Um, what they found is that if you had a high level of ACEs, adverse childhood experiences or events, you have a dram dramatic increased risk of seven out of the top 10 causes of death you have a 20-year a reduction in lifespan. Um, and you have a six-fold increased risk of, of things like chronic fatigue. With just four of the ACEs, four of those adverse childhood events that I mentioned, you've got a 400% increased risk of depression, anxiety, things like bipolar, Alzheimer's, dementia, that whole sort of, you know, the mental imbalances. There's also a huge link, 200% increased risk of infertility. Um, diabetes is much higher, cancer and heart disease are both linked. So with this kind of, uh, with these studies, 67% of adults, all adults have had that experience at least, and that was an underestimate. The, the, the experts are saying that was a massive underestimate of the total number of people who've been exposed um, because the study was actually very superficial um, and they didn't really get to some of the things like emotional neglect. You know, emotional neglect isn't an event, it's what didn't happen. And that's really hard to self-report. And we have an epidemic of that going on as well. So just that just shows you that, you know, our childhood biography becomes adult biology. The mind and the body are one thing. And what the data shows is that these experiences translate into our brains, into the nervous system, into the biochemistry, into our energy fields. And it basically causes us to, it becomes our identity and we go out into the world that way. And all kinds of health imbalances um, kind of come from that, including thyroid issues, um, Hashimoto's. There's a, if, you're, if you have just two ACEs, you have a 100% increased risk of all, all autoimmunity. In fact, the correlation of early life stress for women is as strongly correlated as smoking is in lung cancer. 
for adult onset autoimmunity like Hashimoto's, which could be one of the underlying causes mm -hmm. of obviously our thyroid issues. So people are sort of, it's an epidemic of lack of self-awareness <laughs> of not realizing that you might be a kind of person who's the uh, overachiever, overdriver, and not realizing that it was just an insufficient environment in your social environment has a massive impact on you. And then we internalize that stress and we're sort of walking stress balls. I think um, Eckhart Tolle called it the pain body. And we'll do anything to get away from that pain. But it not only directly affects the biochemistry right away, it also leads to behaviors that cause the biochemistry. Sugar addictions, alcohol addiction, um, not being able to stick to a lifestyle plan that you know would work to balance your hormones, like circadian rhythm management, going to bed on time, doing exercise. You know, it, so it's a sort of uphill battle if we don't, we need this multifactorial approach, basically. Wow, I actually love going back and finding these clips and listening to the episodes again. I feel like I take something new away from it each time. And this is because usually you only take 30 to 40% of what you're listening or reading in that one moment of time. So definitely go back and listen and you'll probably take something new away or it's just always a friendly reminder to get some of this information. Hope you have a wonderful Christmas and New Year break. And I'll see you back here again, January 4th, 2021. I know this year has been absolutely crazy for the majority of us, but I still honor you for seeking out this information and investing in your health with this education that you're receiving. Wishing you all the best. Have a great day or night, wherever you are. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did and you would love a free copy of my hormone-friendly recipes guide, please leave me a rating and review and I will email you a copy as a thank you gift. All you need to do is screenshot your rating and review and send it to me at hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. This guide contains delicious gluten, dairy, grain, and refined sugar-free recipes, and all the meals contain specific hormone superfoods. Don't worry, there are no boring salad recipes included. Come and say hi over on Instagram at vivanaturalhealth as I share a ton of free content every day and you can get to know more about me and how I stay hormonally healthy. If you haven't already, check out my website, vivanaturalhealth.co.uk for my blog and many free guides which cover everything from clearing acne to gut health and hair loss. If you're ready to identify and address the root causes of your hormonal issues, whether that's acne, PMS, PCOS, hair loss or problematic periods, take that first step today and apply for an enrolment call on my website. We'll use this call to discuss the steps that you need to take in order to achieve hormonal harmony and how I could help you get there. See you back here next week for another episode.